This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, CIIS professor Meg Jordan examines some recent findings from the world of science that are shaking up our notions of how to recover from trauma and illness. The talk was recorded on September 29, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. to jump in. This talk has been called Everything from Scientific Discoveries for Health. I tend to call it Six Big Ideas for Human Flourishing and Health. This is all research that I've had fun putting together, and I always believe in dedicating any talk that I do, and my dedication for this one is for some individuals I'm going to run through here. First of all is Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, for being able to overcome such adversity and looking at friends and colleagues and monks being slaughtered in prayer and still saying that the purpose of life is happiness, even after something like that. Where does that resilience come from? We're going to stock it. To also Nelson Mandela, of course, after 26 accumulated years of incarceration, what does it mean for an individual to come out and to be the champion of Truth and Reconciliation Commission? Extraordinary well-being and resilience. To little Aviel Richmond, you may not know this name, she was one of 20 youngsters slaughtered needlessly at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Her family has now dedicated a foundation named after Aviel that studies brain health. How can we really look at the problems in our society about mental health, mental disturbances, violence, and guns? And finally, to Trayvon Martin and all those who follow him for being our first awakening to the insanity of social injustice and to say we need to come up with a better idea of how to live together on this planet. So with that in mind, I want to begin this talk about human flourishing with a real respectful pause because the lessons and the insights that I share with you truly come out of the brilliance and the suffering for those who went before me. So not all my ideas. Um, this is a list of the ideas, six big ideas, purpose, compassion, power of the present moment, power of networks, epigenetics, and rest and recovery. So I will be folding within each of these ideas much of the science and discoveries I'm talking about. We all have a sense of what the multiple dimensions of wellness are. We teach this here in our Integrative Health Masters at CIS. And you probably recognize this. This is the wellness wheel that looks at the emotional, intellectual, physical, social, occupational, spiritual, and environmental. These are the various dimensions of wellness. We can't really roll the wellness wheel forward unless we take a look at each one of these segments. I have some students in the audience, and they all have been looking at their own wellness wheel and how lopsided it may be when they are graduate students and how they have to attend to their own holistic self-care in a very dedicated way. A little bit about myself. I am a medical anthropologist, a clinical medical anthropologist. There aren't a lot of us, maybe 50 or so, uh, roaming around here in the West Coast. But what we do is, um, oh, we study 
the ways in which health and wellness and disease and illness are defined through a cultural lens. So I have been known to search the globe for all sorts of healing remedies, um, rituals, insights about how native traditions go about their healing and recovery. And my travels have taken me to quite a few places. Um, they've taken me to so many places that Discovery Channel tapped my shoulder a while ago and wanted me to put together 13 episodes of what it means to do global medicine hunting, global medicine questing. They did those episodes, and then they shelved them because they thought, mm, maybe we need twins and leather bras and make it more of a reality show. Right, so it did, Canada actually picked up many of the shows and three years worth of radio and TV that went along with it. So I've always combined my careers as a journalist and a an anthrop medical anthropologist. How did I get that name, Global Medicine Hunter? It was actually given to me in my explorations in Nepal. I traveled around with just a little saline and some first aid kit, and I would be met on the road by individuals with a bamboo leg sticking out of their leg because there was no, no clinics for about a 72-mile hike. And as a result of just using some basic first aid that I knew as an ICU, CCU, emergency room nurse as well, somebody said, you're a medicine hunter. And I used that word hunter, which was really strange, because they wanted to know what I was doing so far from home looking for medicine, that all medicine, good medicine, is in one's backyard. One's backyard is what I also studied when I did a lot of work with Don Antonio here and, and his brother, Don Paul, from Ecuador, when they were looking at the shaman um, influence of what he called the sugar disease in his village. So he had a cure rate of almost 80% to balancing blood sugar, which was unbelievable. We were taking blood sugar samples and sending them back to labs in New Jersey and Michigan, saying, how come just a prayer over a certain plant and giving that plant, picking it at the right time of day, at the right time of the moon, and handing it out to his villagers, was he able to really create a balanced blood glucose profile that would just stun us without any of the drugs such as metformin or anything else we use here in the States for type 2 diabetes or insulin-dependent diabetes. So this was astounding to me, how somebody could enact all sorts of different healing without a lab, without looking at blood sugars, and yet have this kind of effect. I grew to really appreciate the arts of Kurandisma in... Um, Oaxaca, for one, and throughout most of South America, looking at shamanism as well. And as I studied this more and more, I began to question my own scientific social conditioning, both as an RN and as a medical anthropologist, because I was always taught that, you know, the magic only works if you believe it, right? And so here I was, a North American visiting elsewhere, not really necessarily believing in the magic, until I was in one marketplace in a mercado in Quitos, and there was talk about a visiting shaman being there. And then I realized they were talking about me. I'm not a shaman, I would never attest to be one. But at the same time, all of a sudden I felt this crazy knife, pointed little knife-like object go right between my shoulder blades. And I was feeling very faint, and I was asking somebody to take a look. Somebody stuck something in my back right here. Can you take a look? There was nothing there, but there was a spiritual dart thrown at me from a local competitive sorcerer. And that spiritual dart landed in me in a way in which 
I did not believe in the magic, and yet the magic was having an effect. So this sort of disassembled my entire scientific worldview in a second. Everything tumbled in that moment. The bricks came out of the mortar, and I didn't know what was happening. And I actually started to faint a little bit. And I was taken into one of the little huts by a local Kurandera, who ministered to me with Olympia, with all sorts of healing gestures, prayers, chants. She had one of those altars that is so beautifully typical of South American medical pluralism and spiritual pluralism. There was Jesus, there was Guadalupe, there was local Quechuan gods and goddesses. There was even a rubber Donald Duck that somebody had given her in their travels, and she figured it was some kind of totem animal from up north. So everybody was there, the squeaky Donald Duck side by side with Jesus and Mary and, and native gods and indigenous gods. And that altar and her healing limpia, which is kind of a wash of, of herbs and blessings and prayers, restored my health. But it changed me, it changed me on a cellular level and gave me the respect that you don't always have to believe in the magic for it to work. I did a lot of visiting of various spiritist communities in Brazil as well. You might recognize these um, crystals that are at the um, Casa of John of God. We've had many faculty here at CIS who have made pilgrimages to his um, Casa in, in Brazil, where there's a lot of prayer, spiritist work, dispossession work, healing of hands. Right now, in our latest journal of um, alternative and complementary therapies, we have seen a brand new study of spiritism in Brazil that looks at this laying out of hands and actually found some, tried to track what is the mechanism of action. Of course, in our Western minds, we all want to know what is the mechanism of action? Why is this working? How come with a little spiritual hand-holding or waving over a body, people are actually improving their health outcomes? Um, they're starting to look at fluid and microtubules and fluid within the cell. Now this, granted, is a scientific reductionist kind of method for tracking what happens. If I were to have asked the woman who anointed me as a global medicine hunter, this mama right here, Didi, in, in uh, Nepal, she would have just said, first thing you have to do is take off those crazy things on your feet. She was pointing to my hiking boots, which had all sorts of layers of polyurethane rubber that were insulating me from the earth. She felt that any problems I was having in my knee was because I was cut off from the earth's energy. The elders in Nepal will be walking up and down major hills with their incredible square flat feet uh, that grip the earth, and they'll do it even when there's snow on the ground because she believes she draws the energy from the earth as she walks. She couldn't understand how I could have trekked as far as I did to her village wearing these horrible boots that she put them on and she was cut off from all of the kind of micro-sensations that are read by the, the fascia underlying your foot that travel right up to the body. And um, she gave me a lot of advice. And for the advice, she asked for my earrings, which I thought was a fair trade. Fair trade. <laughs> this is, I went to the um, Qigong Institute in Shanghai, did a lot of study on the red reishi. I'm hoping we have it here in our bookstore eventually. Red reishi mushroom is an adaptogenic Mushroom, it's so extraordinary. When we take the red reishi and we take a, a Petri dish of tumor cells 
and we put an adaptogenic mushroom like red reishi on it, it selectively kills the tumor cells without harming the other cells. What is the incredible wisdom in nature's botanicals that allows for that kind of a selective kill-off? We have no clue yet. Been to the Bruja markets, worked with the Blue Buddha, which is the medicine Buddha, studied gross national happiness with the health ministry in Bhutan. I love this photo. It is a picture of a Bhutanese healer working with a Tibetan Buddhist nun who's in exile, as many of the, of the Tibetan nuns and, and monks are, what they're doing is looking away from the camera where I was standing because they are watching the dispossession of a spirit that they felt was embodied in the Tibetan nun as it is exiting the room. So they're both saying goodbye to this vexing spirit that had possessed her for a while, and together they had their healing. All sorts of healing I've tried around the world. These are the famous ear cleaners of Delhi. If you ever sit down in a public park in Delhi, watch out. Someone will approach you with what looks like a four-inch knitting needle and start cleaning your ears as a public health service. <laughs> so I have to tell you, I always keep my wits about me as I investigate healing remedies. Some healing remedies are profound and traditional and deserve our respect. And others are sham. We have sham all over the world. And these two characters took my shoes off so I couldn't escape and also put a wad of waxy substance at the end of the needle that they pulled out of their pocket. And this was like a major big bubblegum wad. And they put that on the end of the needle and they showed me what they cleaned out of my ears. And I said, that's baloney. Get out of here. So also have your discerning perspective with you. Bring your intelligence with you. Whenever you hear of a health claim that sounds fantastic or outrageous, it might be. When I came home, I started to look at people who do massive piercing and massive tattooing, and including implants. You can see the little implant horns on this fairly well, full-body tattooed fella. And at that point, I started to move into some of the other big ideas that I'm going to announce to you. And this one in particular was identities of belonging. Belonging is what keeps him well. He is enjoying that. We have a doubling of scientific knowledge that's going on every 12 months right now. And with IBM Watson that's taking place, we're expecting that to turn into about every 12 hours very soon. A doubling of scientific knowledge every 12 hours, if you can imagine that. So this is something called the analysis through deep data, turning the lens back upon ourselves of observational analysis, using not just big data, which is used for commercialization, following you and your, your commercialized efforts so that it can be marketed to you better, but actually using data to work for health and happiness and human scale. I love this cartoon of the dog with his aromatherapy candles, okay? And I love this one of Zumba class. A Zumba class. How many are here are great fans of exercise medicine? This is some of the earliest medicine, movement. Absolutely. Movement with rhythm that is contagious and compelling. And, uh, you know, if we could bottle this, the pharmaceutical agents companies, if they could actually put the benefits of exercise into one pill, well, they, they'd be crawling all over each other in the competitive fashion. The beauty of this is that you already hold the patent on that. 
you have exercise and movement as your birthright. I also know that I've studied a lot with um, molecular biologists at a company called Avivi. Avivi is looking at the science of life within each cell, and as they got closer, they've started to follow the work of molecular biologists that investigating our DNA strand, the double helix itself. There's talk right now that the child that was discovered a few years ago in the UK actually has a third strand of DNA. And ever since Rosalind Franklin, the woman that actually cognized the design of the double helix, and it was sort of lifted off her desk by Watson and Crick, who got a lot of credit for it, and I'm so glad this is being recorded. Take that, Watson and Crick. Rosalind Frankel, look her up. She's a, a woman scientist in the UK that did not get much credit for it. Thank you for that nod. But ever since then, people have been wondering, are we really just going to live with the double-stranded, double helix here? Uh, it's two-strand. And since then, it's bizarre. Are we seem to be evolving more strands. There's evidence now that there's a third strand, a fourth strand, some talk about a seventh, some are predicting there will be 12 strands. Whether all these strands will be well used, we don't know yet. This is some of the work of longevity experts such as Audrey de Grey. This guy is a character. He's an Oxford researcher and he really believes that we need to reconfigure life itself. There's no reason to die, he says. He's got the beard of Methuselah, and he drinks a dark brew beer every day. That might be part of his prescription for a long life. But he's with a handful of futurists who believe that the babies born right now, today, will live to 120. And 120 is not going to be the stopping place. They're predicting 140, 160 for human longevity. Of course, a lot of this depends on your zip code, right? We see 30-year span difference between a zip code in southern Alabama and one in Cambridge, Boston area. But we do know this, that the people who are the great experimenters of this are really going out on a limb for us. Ray Kurzweil, for instance, a futurist, inventor of the flatbed scanner, lived off of that for a while. He, he's up to 120 supplements a day. Can you imagine swallowing that many? That's a lot, 120 supplements a day. And not all of them are just for ramping up the action of the mitochondria. Some of them he believes are gonna help his telomeres stay intact. Others are supplements like phosphatidylserine. You should know about that one if you've got any concerns about an aging parent or grandparent with some memory problems, cognition problems, L-serine, S-E-R-I-N-E. -E. It's an amino acid, and it's also been investigated by folks who've looked at um, neurofibrillary tangles in the brain. They've looked at the misfolded proteins, the Tau proteins, the things that gum up the brain and lead to various neurodegenerative diseases, such as um, Alzheimer's, perhaps Parkinson's. Um, perhaps ALS, we're not real sure where it ends. But they're taking all these supplements, hoping that if they can load up the L-serine amino acid, and if it can stop the kind of entanglement that happens in a gummed up brain. Well, we teach integrative health here. We also know that high levels of sugar and no activity, physical activity, are also a prescription for what some integrative medicine folks call type three diabetes, diabetes of the brain or Alzheimer's. So holism is really a, a pretty healthier route to go. All right, 
time I mentioned the six ideas. Here they are, purpose, compassion, power of presence, power of networks, epigenetics, and recovery to the natural world. Let's jump into purpose right off the bat. Hello. What I love about purpose is some research done at Carleton University in Canada. I was really impressed when I found this study. It's called the Midlife in the U.S. Study, and they came down, looked across the border, and looked at 6,000 participants that focused on how having a self-reported purpose in life, a vision, something that pulled them forward all the time, and all had greater longevity. Now, the only reason they could conclude greater longevity linked with a purpose in life was because of their numbers. It was a very well-documented, excellent study with controlled variables and 6,000, a very significant number. I'd say that it does help to have a vision or greater purpose in your life. It will buoy you through tough times when the going gets tough. Um, and, then, and for some people who can't imagine struggling with a health goal, that alliance to a greater vision in life does a lot. Our second big idea is, of course, connection and social belonging. This one is getting a lot of attention. I've got here that the neuroscience of social belonging is really focusing now on these four areas of the brain. Dorsal anterior cingulate, a ventral vagal tone, which is one of the 10th the, uh, cranial nerve, the dopamine reward system, and the mirror neuron system. What I love about the neuroscience is that some of the findings are making huge headlines and people are jumping all over it. I'm approaching it much more cautiously, that there is no single correlation between a neuroscience finding and an absolute piece of behavior, thought, or insight. We have to be careful how we make these conclusions. I teach a course called Interpersonal Neurobiology within our Integrative Health Program, and it's the quality of our social connections and relatedness that shapes our brain and our nervous system, not just for physical health, but emotional health. And I want to credit Dr. Amy Banks at the Gene, Maker Miller, Gene Baker Miller Institute for highlighting these four areas of the brain as central players in the work of how neurosculpting happens due to the relationships that you spend your most time with on a daily basis. She's got a wonderful survey that lets you look at the five people you spend your most time with. And how do you feel around them? Do you feel calm? Do you feel accepted? Or do you feel judged and critiqued? Do you feel resonant with them? Do you feel seen and heard? Is there all these various areas of the brain lighting up through functional MRI studies about the social connections. I have my students in integrative health take that survey for themselves. Yes, she's nodding. It works. It works. You can really evaluate relationships and how they are either disaffecting, improving, enhancing, or deteriorating brain health. Uh, years ago, I brought Dr. Gabor Mate. He's a medical doctor who did much of his work in the in a very troubled area in Vancouver that looked at high addiction rates on the streets in Vancouver. He's written extensively about connections between early nurturing with caregivers and later development of addiction. I th I'd say his work about hungry ghosts, and that's that hunger that you're always feeling that you haven't had that love or nurturance, and therefore you're seeking it through a drug or something unhealthy, is validated a lot by the ACE study. A study, Adverse Childhood Events. It was done by the CDC in connection with Kaiser 
an immense study, and it's ongoing. It looks at 10 different types of childhood trauma and stunning, stunning correlations with the development and later life of chronic disease, both mental and social problems. So if you took the ACE survey right now and examined these 10 different areas of various abuse, sexual abuse, sexual abuse, uh, physical rather, emotional, verbal, it's comforting to know that even if you had a high score on the ACE study, that it can be ameliorated later through supportive relationships, through integrative health modalities, as good nutrition, community, pleasurable physical activity, a host of other measures that the good news is that our brain is plastic, it's changeable, and we can improve things. But it takes work, you know, you have to be willing to build your resilience. You have to be willing to look at the appreciation moments in life. That's why I really like the work of the Institute of Heart Math. Some of you know this group. They're holed up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. They've been there for many decades, and they're doing some extraordinary work on the power of the heart and generative moments of heart connection to actually affect things like vagal tone and heart rate variability, which is often the single largest predictor of all cause mortality. How do you have generative moments? Do you have your own repository in your mind of these heartfelt moments? I have one. I always hold near and dear. When I chips are down and I need to pull out this kind of feeling of this heart torus here, this electromagnetic field of an expanded heart space, I picture my three-year-old who, he's 33 now, but he was three, and he was in a little Johnny jump up, and I was playing some da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, boom, da-da-da-da, and he's dancing to this thing, and I can close my eyes and I can picture it right now, and in that moment, I know that my own electromagnetic field of my heart, the torus, that's a physics word, T-O-R-U-S, is actually expanding out. You know when you're in the presence of somebody with an expanded heart electromagnetic field, and when you're not, you all have had the sense of walking into a room and feeling the cold shoulder from somebody. You've said things. Your vernacular is filled with words like, geez, I just get a bad vibe in here, or wow, that was cold. And that's somebody with a shrunk-in electromagnetic field heart torus, and you're feeling that effect. These are tangible effects being measured in labs now. Follow the work of Institute of Heart Math. Fascinating. Also, what's your connection like? What's your community like? I love studying how many people are in your supportive community. This is the work I follow as a medical anthropologist. I can't help but pull up a sign of a homo sapien right here. Actually, this is homo erectus about two million years ago. Our ancestors, homo habilis actually, decided to grow a bigger brain. And the first appearance of cerebral cortex marked the passage from Homo habilis to Homo erectus. And all it was was two inches of forehead that managed to pop up in this evolutionary scale. But that two inches of cerebral cortex all of a sudden meant better tools, harnessing fire, cooking food, migrating out of the rift in Africa, heading to the Fertile Crescent. All sorts of activity started to kick in. The cerebral cortex continued to grow all the way up to about 400,000 years ago, which is the modern homo sapien brain, the one we're all sitting with right now. It's like to people think that we've evolved much past that, but actually we're still posting things on walls like they did on caves. Yeah. You know, I'm seeing the same kind of Facebook behavior. 
This is something important for you all to know. You need to have a group of at least 9 to 18 individuals for human flourishing. Are there at least 5 to 9, if you don't have 9 to 18, 5 to 9 that you could call on if you suddenly had a flat tire in a neighborhood you didn't know, you were scared, it was 2 in the morning, you didn't pay your AAA, and you needed to call people. Do you have 5 people on your list that you could call? Wow. I've done this talk to Burning Man headquarters, to hackathons, to um, different groups. I did it to AT&T executives years ago. And what happened was they couldn't quite list three to four people that they could call at two in the morning. Please know this is important from a medical anthropology viewpoint because our systems, neuroendocrine, our digestive system, our circulatory system, our entire nervous system evolved at a time when we were in clusters of 9 to 18. If the number dipped below that, then the fire went out and the baby's butt wasn't wiped and the saber-toothed tiger wasn't wrestled with if it was alive at that time. In other words, the niche died out. The niche died out, so we had this correlative growth and expansion of our own physiological systems in clusters. We are social animals. Our brain is a social organ. It only functions well due to the level of social connections. Which brings me to our third good idea. You know, presence is something that has been investigated. I have to give credit right off the bat. The more time you spend in the present moment and not ruminating endlessly about the past or what you should have said or what you should have done or what an idiot you were, about something, the less time you're there, the better off for your body and for your DNA, it appears. It was pretty exciting, some of the earlier work that was done by Dr. Dave, um, Richie Davidson at his University of Wisconsin-Madison lab. And he was the first one to really map the electrode activity of Tibetan monks. He's here with Ricard. And this study that he had done back then was our first inkling that, wow, somebody with 40,000 hours of meditation is a really pretty beautiful being. They have this relaxed insula, they have a bigger hippocampus, the brain waves are all in harmonious states. How do we ever get that way? Can we get there with, with a 10 minutes of meditation over a five-year period? Well, they made some conclusions that maybe you're not going to do the same number of 40,000 hours that these monks did, but there is ways that you can start working with that insula, the deepest center of the brain, which we're starting to call now the seat of empathy. This tiny little area, and there's actually kind of four insulas, there's one on each hemisphere, and front and back, dorsal and, and ventral, and what we look at these, these insula is the ability to kind of have presence, be in present time awareness, to pause, to rethink, to change our behavior. This might be the single most important evolutionary stance of Homo sapien, is the ability to stop a runaway thought in its tracks that is harmful. The ability to stop and pause and to come up with a better idea. That in itself might be our single greatest achievement. I don't think we saw much of that in the date bait in the other day <laughs> by one individual, which, which tells us we've got some evolving to do here. Okay, that might be edited out, we'll see. Um, this is an old model of the triune brain, you know. 
I, I think it's still a helpful model to look at the fact that we evolved in a reptilian brain, a mammalian brain, and then this folded over neocortex, which is the crowning achievement of our present evolved state where our executive functions are taking place. I think we can do a lot of work around reactivity to creativity by staying in the present moment and inner spaciousness as well. Having so many studies done on mindfulness now, every single medical conference I go to, all the poster sessions, I'd say 80% of them are investigating the benefits of mindfulness and meditation for physical, emotion, and social well-being. Extraordinary number. And if you can't do a full meditation, find yourself with some pausing moments, micro-moments of deep appreciation might get you the same effect. Uh, just some looking at that generative bioelectromagnetic field that happens with heart-centered meditation. And the torus I was talking about. The torus is actually, you know the old slinky toy that kind of was like this? It was like wires. If you took a slinky toy and you took both ends and you wrapped them around in a donut and you connected it at the other end, that's the actual physics shape of the electromagnetic field around the heart, the torus. Let's move into presence. Mm, we can thank our Nobel Prize winners right in the neighborhood over here, Elizabeth Blackburn and her colleague, healthy psychology researcher, Elizabeth, Alyssa Apple Appel at UCSF for their combined work on the DNA polyamorase enzyme telomerase. This is a wonderful picture here of the, the chromosomes and the red endings are the telomere caps, just like shoelace caps at the end of your shoelace. They keep the chromosome from fraying very much during heavy-duty cell division. With every cell division, though, you know, the chromosome has a, is threatened with being shortened a little bit, but it's the health of the telomere cap in place there that keeps it from prematurely aging, from falling apart, from becoming what is often called a atypical cell. You may get a biopsy and be told, well, there's some atypical cells here. They're not quite changed. They look like they're going to change. We don't really call them precancerous yet, but they may be on their way to being precancerous. That is a sign of the, perhaps some fraying of the chromosomal ends. The work that was done at UCSF looked at how can certain nutritious diets and vitamins and everything else and physical exercise all help to safeguard the ends of those chromosomes from premature aging and becoming cancerous. Um, we, what I really love about their work, though, is they started to look at compassion and mindfulness as keeping these ends in place. That was the real breakthrough I want to share with you, and looked at the difference between eudaimonic and hedonic values. People who have a larger proportion of their values in life, what really is important to them, in a eudaimonic nature, which means I am looking for the bigger vision in life, I am looking for social service and meaning, I'm looking for ways in which I can contribute to this greater good, um, I feel an urge to be altruistic, to give back. Those are all the meanings behind eudaimonic. Hedonic, on the other hand, is based on a more hedonistic view. I want instant gratification. I want what I want now. The heck with the greater good. So it's kind of the difference of what I found in Bhutan when I was investigating gross national happiness. Happiness to them was completely defined according to the collective. They couldn't imagine in their Buddhist nature, 
individual happiness that was at the expense of somebody else. That did not cut it. It was, no, what's going on for the greater good here? There's a wonderful society in, in Berkeley, too, the Common Good, great website. You can link onto that, and they get a little daily mail from them as well. A lot of people looking at this idea of, is it time to park aside the rugged individual lone hero, John Wayne Americana, of I'm out for myself, I'm about to build my empire. In, in lieu of that, can we look at our more collective nature of society as a whole? Can we look at eudaimonic values versus hedonic? What's amazing about this research is the telomeres fall apart faster with the hedonic values. Keep that one. I'll take that one home from you. Presence. Ah, also promotes neuroplasticity. We know what neuroplasticity is, the ability of the brain to change, to rewire itself, to go from a well-worn groove into creating new pathways in the brain. We have so much wonderful research now on neuroplasticity, and that the most of it really is being centered on the value of social connections as well. And the ability not only to grow new neural connections, we're finding out that what gets fired gets wired. As you are having certain thoughts in a certain direction, the actual wiring becomes strengthened. If we were to take a microscopic view of it, molecular view of it, we would see it's like a heavy white cord linking certain neurons. And others are kind of a weak cord. How do we actually slip through the mental mud to leave a well-worn groove and actually create a new one in the brain? This is the tough work of adopting a healthful habit. If I go home and I am cued by chocolate chip cookies sitting on the counter and I want to just reach for those, that's part of my well-worn groove to reward myself with that chocolate because I've had a long, hard day. What does it take for me to go, oh, no, open the fridge and cut up some vegetables and make myself a good sautéed veggie instead? If I'm in a habit of this, I have to pause, I have to practice mindfulness, I have to do some deep breath work, whatever it is, I have to stop the well-worn groove and create a new one. And then you can do it. You can do it. We know now that not only will you do it with a real creative effort and some mindfulness and focused attention, but not only do we actually manage to get new wiring done, we are creating new cells. This was really good news. Neurogenesis, the creation of new cells. We didn't think this was possible. Just med school about 15 years ago, no, not even that, maybe eight years ago, was still teaching that if you spent the whole night outside with a late-night debauchery and you drank yourself into oblivion, you lost a lot of brain cells. Shame on you. <laughs> and they were never to be retrieved. They were gone forever. We all heard this. Now it appears that, yeah, that kind of binge drinking is not great for any brain. There's other kind of deterioration to the cerebral cortex. But what we do know is that you can create new cells. That new neural network and new cells happens. And this was a fabulous finding. And takes us to our power of networks. Big idea number four. Mm, power of networks. Take a look at these three pictures. And for those of you who are listening by audio, I'm showing three photos right here, and one, and they all kind of look like a, a starry effect of connected wires, right? That's what you see. This is the power of fractals in repeating in nature. One of those pictures is the neural network of the brain, 
One is the mycelial network of a large mushroom, just one, and the fantastic fibers under the ground. And the third is of galaxies, the 100,000 galaxies that seem to parallel the 100,000 neurons, the tens of thousands of synapse connections from just one neuron out into space. So this sort of repeating fractal, this gorgeous micro-macro-cosmic view of connection is also repeated here. Another slide I'm showing our public audience that I'm telling our audio audience about is one of a million little dots all connected with wires. And what it is is the hormonal map in the body. The hormonal map is a massive network that's our timekeepers, our rhythm, appetite, sleep, sexual desire, childbearing, all of our time clocks going off in the body. This next slide looks just like the London tube map, right? You've been to the London tube. This is pretty much what it looks like. However, this is the map of the meta metabolic map of the body. So I want to thank my teacher, Paul Stamets, for pointing some of this glorious stuff out. He's everybody's favorite mycologist. And he's managed to find mushroom networks in nature that can span 2,500 acres in the Pacific Northwest from one family of mushroom. I've likened that to what we have right here with our own redwood forests as well. The redwood forests, when that great big grandpa tree hears the first slice of the ax, it sends out an electrochemical signal to its offspring that rise up in a fairy wing, fairy ring of, of centuries in a circle around it, a glorious circle around it a power of network saying, goodbye, Grandpa, you're falling to the ax, but here we are, the next generation, rising up in a poetic way like guardians around you in nature. Oh, power of networks. I hope we don't lose it. Sometimes we walk down the streets and mean streets in some city and we feel such a hollowness and disconnection with folks. You know who warned us about this? Robert Putnam, extraordinary Harvard sociologist that wrote a book called Bowling Alone that said we're losing a lot of our small social networks that kept us alive and well for many, many decades. Bowling groups um, that had an eye-to-eye, face-to-face contact. Yes, social media does bring us together in ways, but don't lose the eye-to-eye and face-to-face, -face, or we're losing something that's part of our birthright as humans. I'm moving now. It says number three, but it shouldn't. It's uh, just the idea of epigenetics. And the epigenetics and the epi epigenome is actually something that is a pretty wonderful scientific discovery, also part of a network that's been happening right here in San Francisco area. First, there was the Human Genome Project, right? And that was aimed at mapping all the human DNA and understanding how the genetic code defines and controls genes. It took 15 years to map out that human genome. And it cost $3 billion. And that all ended in 2005. It was declared, we figured out the DNA. And today, you can get your human genome done for about $1,000, right? Big price difference from $3 billion. But knowing the DNA code proved only to give us a backdrop of the human blueprint. Scientists then really needed to move on to understanding the epigenome which is way above and beyond the human genome. It's going to take us another 10 years and estimated about $240 million to map out this human genome. 
and it is right now being done by several university labs, including UCSF. The mapping of this human genome is all about the molecular switches that either turn on a gene or turn off a gene. And this is why the DNA is not your destiny, as Time Magazine cover declared, because it all depends on the sea your cells swim in, the sea that your DNA swims in. What are you feeding your DNA? Are you feeding it a toxic environment of shame and humiliation? Are you feeding it negative thoughts every day? Are you feeding it uh, bags of non-nutritious junk food, GMO food, toxicities, pesticides? What is it that is sea that it's swimming in? Because that's going to determine which of those genes express themselves in the somatotype itself. When I ran across this incredible lady, and you can find her photo on Google Images now, I can't believe it, but she sits in a doorway in Havana. And there she was with her sneakers and her big cigar. And I thought, how does somebody thrive so well having about five of these cigars a day, you know, with no respiratory ailments or anything else? Now a botanist might tell me, well, the tobacco's grown with all, all the toxicities and pesticides here. It's a pure tobacco. It's not so bad. But we do know that there's still a paralyzing ciliary effect in the respiratory parenchyma. I do know, too, that she is a happy woman. She lives with rousing Cuban music every day. She's got a big red rose in her hair. She celebrates life on a daily basis. The sea that her DNA swims in is actually an enlightened, happy ocean. This has a huge effect right here versus this airplane that Larry Davidson's sitting on, right? This is Stress City. Is every encounter with other human beings one of total stress with you? Actually, I can't blame him. I've probably been on this flight as well with some kid kicking my hair and another one putting stuff in my hair. But the human genome is really determined now, we know, by the stresses that we live with on a daily basis. So you have to start evaluating, are you adding too much to your plate? There's only so much stress management any human being can do. At some point, we have to start to say, how do I eliminate some of these stressors in life so I don't turn into Wolverine? Good. External modifications to DNA. This is how some of the early studies were done on things like methylation and mutation. We found the DNA wasn't changing, but it was the switching on and off of cells. Your takeaway here is what is the sea your cells are swimming in? What is the quality of your own epigenome? I did mention a bit on positivity, and I just want you to know that this stark statistic here that by age 11, almost 70% of the incoming messages received are negative ones. And if there's a young child in your life, how you can bring some attention to shifting that balance to positive st statements. I want to thank some, so many of the happiness researchers right now for looking at that. Uh, Sonia Lewinsky, I hope I'm not murdering her name, she's at UC Riverside, and she's done one of the most practical books about love and compassion and joy and peace and cultivating human happiness for yourself, how to engage with it. Barbara Fredrickson also started looking at the ratio, how many positive thoughts are needed to wipe out one negative thought in the brain. We are wired for more negative thinking. That's just part of our survival, our brainstem as well. We're always scanning for what could go amiss, always scanning for where's the fault. If I walk into a room and something is shifted, 
That's my dorsal anterior cingulate, on alert, looking for attention, looking for what's different. That's how we're wired. That's why it takes an effort of increasing positivity to balance the negative that we always encounter in life. And shoring up some of those micro moments of shared positive emotion. I'm telling you this, it sounds like I was going to give you a lot of health information here, and I seem to be giving you a lot of psychological, emotional, and social information, because this seems to be where our research is taking us, not only to lifestyle factors, but how the biopsychosocial model is so firmly ingrained in our emotional tone, including the tone of something called our ventral vagus, our cardiac vagal tone. Words change the brain and how the ventral vagus feels safe. It's a myelinated branch of the vagus nerve, the 10th cranial nerve, and it has a lot to do with how we hear and receive another human being. It has branches that actually go to the corners of the mouth, the pharynx, corners of the eyes. When you're holding a little baby and you're doing a rock and you're saying, you are such a little beauty, you are such a little beauty, the voice gets soft, the corners of the mouth go up, the pupils dilate a little bit, there's a moistening here. That's all thank you, vagus tone. Vagus tone, working away, establishing that human connection. The baby's responding with that. For the baby that is propped up with a bottle, and that bottle falls away, and all they know is hunger, and the adult has left the room, that vagal tone could be very poor with years of that. So it's that incredible time of pregnancy and zero to six months when a lot of this is laid down with vagal tone. This is what we have to really look at too. How are we actually nurturing the next generation with the neuroscience findings that we have now? It should be changing our behavior on a daily basis. What sustains you? I'm really interested in that. What sustains all of you on a daily basis? If you were to write down right now the five things that help you feel better, what are the five things you do? Take a moment. Five things you do on a daily basis when you are feeling bad and you need to feel better. You know, do you reach for a chocolate bar? Yeah, could be. Do you binge on Netflix? I've done a little of that. Mm, do you make a phone call? Do you look at social media? There are things that we habitually do to make ourselves feel better. That is part of our well-worn dopamine reward system, too. That little bit of a dopamine squirt that you get in that moment is your feel better. If those five things that you just wrote down are more like, hmm, I gamble, I have risky sex, unprotected with strangers, um, I do some obsessive shopping, um, alcohol, I turn to it first thing, oh, my jar, my bottle of oxycodone. You know, you have to look at what are the things that help you feel better? Are they unhealthy? Well, that dopamine reward system will reward you and strengthen your connection to unhealthy things just as it strengthens your connection to, to not so healthy things. What sustains you? Take a look and evaluate those things because that could be part of the best part of, uh, of you making a shift of actionable items that I want to leave you with towards your own health and well-being. 
to do this for yourself, I really want to say thank you to Marshall Rosenberg, who was a teacher of mine with nonviolent communication. We lost Marshall last year, but he did some of the most amazing work throughout the world with trying to model ways in which we can look at our basic human needs and be compassionate about them. And we have to unlearn what we've been taught and get back to compassion, our natural state. The social belonging I talked to is important. Were you able to list at least three to five people on your who could actually help you with lifestyle change in any way? If you said to them, I want to make some real behavior change habits for myself, who are your allies in doing so? We know that certain activities are contagious. Uh, there was a big hue and cry before when it came out that obesity might be a socially contagious disease. Remember that? A lot of pushback from an, an entire segment of the population that works for fat advocacy, large person advocacy. They hated that research that showed that we tend to grow a body size to match those around us. It all makes sense. We're following the same eating behavior. We're hanging out in the same places. We're venturing the same restaurants. Our shift in schedules and timing starts to adapt to those who are around us. So social belonging can either move us towards greater health or down the road to poor health. Nothing too scientific about that. Spiritual epiphany, psychology. Right now, we're finding out we spend less than 5% of our time uh, outdoors, 95% of it indoors. That's amazing to me. Amazing. That was National Academy of Science survey in 2008. There's a Morita therapy that was started in Japan that looks at horticulture and being sticking your hands in the dirt and making sure that you have a nature-relatedness factor. So our recovery time in nature is critical for us. Very critical. Six big ideas for human flourishing. I hope you've tracked them with me. The sense of purpose, compassion, presence, the power of networks, the power of epigenetics, the epigenome itself, and the rest in recovery. Thanks for being with us tonight. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. The audio engineer for this episode was Ramdas Khalsa. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.